a passage this morning from Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the impression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, and you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Father, thank you so much for, for your word. And Lord, we... We praise you that you are the God who is for us, the God who is with us, the God who never leaves us, that we sung about. You are ever faithful, Father, and we praise you and we thank you for that. And Father, we thank you for your word, um, your work through the nation of Israel, your work through men and women um, throughout history, not because they deserved it, not because you needed them, but because by your grace you called them to be part of something greater than they anticipated they would ever be a part of. So, Father, I pray that as we open up your word this morning, we would see ourselves in the midst of the great story. (laughs) Men and women, kids that may not be thinking great things for ourselves, but, Father, if you've called us to yourself, you've called us to do great things on your behalf. And so, Father, I pray that as we open up your word, as we study the life of, of Moses, that you would speak to us, you would clarify your will for us, and, God, that we would submit to you with open hands and open arms. We love you. We lift up this time to you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, my name is Kevin Barra. I'm a youth pastor here at Grace Bible Church, so I'm glad to see you guys here this morning. Welcome to summer. We officially hit it. We're in June, people. Um, We're also starting a new series um, of Theophanies. And uh, so I'm going to jump in with that. Um, I have three kids. I have a four-year-old daughter. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old son. And I have an, a 10-month-old son. We're just trying to figure it out, right? And, uh, but what's fun about that is I love playing games with my kids. I, I never thought I would, you know. And I never thought I'd play the game in particular, Peekaboo. You know, I thought, I'm above that, right? But when you've got little kids, it's amazing to see their response to this. Like you get a blanket and you hide behind it and it's like you disappeared from the earth, right? You just, you go there and you pop up uh, and you see the joy in that little kid face. They're like, oh my gosh, they appeared, right? 
And I was playing with this, you know, you can go over and over again, it's hours of amusement. Um, But I remember one point in time, I I brought the blanket up and I kind of threw it up in the air and I duck and I ran and I hide behind my couch. And it's my little son, Micah, sitting there and, and all of a sudden his eyes just get big and he's like, Daddy just vanished. You know, I just see it in his, in his face. Like, where did he go? And, and I peer out from be, behind the couch. And I'm like, hey, buddy. And he's like, ah, you know, and he's excited that, that I'm there. And, and, and the reason I start there is because, because what we all need are moments when we see, okay, this is who the father is. This is what he's really like. We need moments when God steps in and says, okay, I'm still here. I'm still present with you. And we're looking this summer at Theophanies. Moments when God stepped into history. That's the root of the idea of theophany. It's when God moves, he brings his presence. And it's usually something seen. It's usually some sort of physical manifestation. So it's a flame, it's a figure, it's a person. It's when we interact with God. And God has done this throughout history. But in, 19, in the 1960s, during the height of the, of the Cold War, there's a moment when one of the communist um, cosmonauts launched into space. They beat us there, in case you didn't know. And one of the Russian cosmonauts, 1961, was named Yuri Gagarin. And he was the first human to travel into space aboard the Vostok. And he peered through the window of the spacecraft and Gagarin was reported to have made the comment, I don't see God up here. And regardless of whether or not he made the comment, Russian Premier Nikhil Khrushchev, in an anti-religious speech, said this. He said, why do you clutch at God? Look, Gagarin flew in space and saw no God. And this comment spread like wildfire. Everyone's uh, looking at this comment. Is it true? He went to space. God wasn't there. Are we at a loss for this? Does God even exist Is God present and active in the world? Can we even know him? And C.S. Lewis, in his witty retort, responded this way. He said, he's making a category mistake. Not seeing God in outer space would be like Hamlet going into his attic and saying, Shakespeare's not here, therefore there is no Shakespeare. The only way for Hamlet to meet Shakespeare is if he writes himself into the story. And that's what we have through our Bible and throughout history. Moments when God writes himself in the story, moments when God condescends to us so that we might know him and walk with him. He reveals himself. And he's done this throughout history. Adam walked with God in the garden. Abraham saw God pass through the pieces in Genesis. Abraham had a meal with God. Jacob had a wrestling match with God. Today we're going to look at one of the most significant moments when God appeared to anyone. And it was when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. See, the story of Moses reads like many of our superhero stories. I mean, like Superman grew up on a planet that was in the midst of destruction. Or Luke Skywalker grew up in a galaxy far, far away, right? Dominated by a powerful, evil emperor. The people of Israel were in Egypt. And it started good. Joseph had led the people there. They were there because he was really saving their lives in the midst of a famine. He was, he was there to protect them, to, to lead them. But then Joseph died and a new pharaoh arose. 
a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph. And the nation of Israel, they were growing in power. They were growing uh, in population. And, and they didn't want this nation of Israel to overtake the nation of Egypt. And so he began oppressing them. And he came to such a state, uh, an extent where he said, I'm going to kill all the firstborn males. And Moses' mom, who's pregnant with Moses, gets wind of this. And she has Moses and she hides him amongst the reeds. And what's fun is that what the scripture says in chapter 1 of Exodus is that, that Moses' sister is sitting there watching Moses in the reeds. I mean, I've got a four-year-old daughter. She does this type of thing all the time. Like the baby's over there. What's the baby doing? You know, I just picture her watching Moses kind of floating there. And then Pharaoh's daughter comes by. And she sees the baby and she said, this must be one of the Hebrew children. And she grabs him up. And what's amazing is Moses' sister then runs over to her and says, you're going to need a nursemaid for him, right? You're going to save him? This is great. I'll go find him. And she goes and gets her mama to raise Moses. And for the next six years, Moses is raised with his mama weaned. And the next 34 years of his life, he's raised in the palace of Egypt. And he was a man caught between two worlds. The Hebrew world that he grew up in, that he knew, and, and the Egyptian world where he was raised as the, the daughter of Pharaoh's son. And when he's in that place, he's walking um, through the marketplace at one point in time, and he sees an Egyptian beating one of his Hebrew countrymen. And he can't take it. He, he springs to action. He had this, this, this desire to defend the weak. And he jumps into action. And, and we don't know if he was intending to kill him or, or just stop him or somehow. But the Egyptian dies. And what do you do when you don't want to get caught? You hide the body, right? So that's exactly what he did. He dug a hole in the sand, buried the body beneath. And then hoping that it's passed, the next day comes along and he sees two of his Hebrew countrymen. And they're, they're fighting, they're arguing. He steps in, he goes, hey guys, why, why are you fighting? What, what's going on? And they say, what are you going to do? You're going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And he freaks. And he runs. And the scripture tells us he runs to Midian. And as he's walking there, he's thinking, oh, what am I going to do? What, where's my life going? What, I, what, what's happening? And he sees some women feeding their sheep at some water. And then suddenly these shepherds come up and start pushing the woman out of the way, getting them out of the way. And this, this desire to protect and defend springs up once again. And he goes there and he manhandles them. He pushes those guys out. You can feed your sheep. Ladies, this is a great scenario. And it works out well for Moses. Because they say, hey, come meet our daddy. They come meet and they meet the dad. And he ends up marrying one of those chicks. Ladies, a dude that will feed, water your sheep. You marry that guy, right? And protect you from the enemy, right? And it works out well. And the scripture tells us for the next 40 years, he's a shepherd in Midian. Wandering through the wilderness, raising these sheep. What happens over 40 years? You get a little wrinklier, right? A little older, a little more experienced. I'll tell you what happens. The wisdom of age and experience sets in. And you learn your place. You see your future, you accept the simplicity of your days, and you walk the sheep, and you water the sheep, and you sleep with the sheep. And the questions of what could have been fade in the rearview mirror. That desire to protect and defend 
it all goes away. And see, Moses at this point is his life saying, hey, I, I was one that wanted to free my people and to, and, and to lead in some sort of way to, to, to help them. But that's long past. He's 80 years old. And for Moses, Moses had moved on. But God still remembers. Though everything has changed in the life of Moses, nothing has changed in the heart of God. And though Moses would like to remain in obscurity, God calls him to rescue a people. And so God in Genesis or Exodus chapter 3 gets his attention through a burning bush. That's where he pops onto the scene. Which is interesting because the, the scripture says that the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. It, it, it was a flame, but it wasn't burning down. And I don't know if you've ever like raised cattle or just watched animals eat, but it gets boring, right? And so he's walking, watch, you know, feeding the animals, watering the sheep, and suddenly he sees something on fire. Well, that's more exciting than everything I'm doing. I'm going to go check it out. And he makes some steps that would, that would change the direction of his life and the destiny of a nation. And he walks over to the bush and the bush speaks to him. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. He takes off his shoes and he, he bows his face and then God directs him in an entirely new direction. In verses 9, 9, through, 9 through 17, God lays out, hey, here's the problem that I'm seeing. The people are oppressed. They are, they are being afflicted and I want to do something. And so he tells them the plan. I'm going to free them from this nation. We're going to bring them to the promised land. It's going to be awesome. And then he shows them his person. And Moses, you're the dude that's going to pull it off. And at that moment, Moses goes, oh, okay. You see, many of us have had those but God moments in our life. For some of you, it, it may have been in college where you're kind of living your life, doing your thing, things are going well, you got, chose your major, start dating, whatever. And then suddenly you, you have this moment where your life intersects with God. When he comes right in front of you and says, this is who I am. I'm calling you towards something great. And for some of you, that was a passionate time. That was a time when, when you started reading your Bible and, and getting engaged and getting involved. But time ticks by. And what was exciting early, when the bills start mounting up, when the kids start coming, when life starts happening, some of those desires to do something great for the cause of God drift to the rearview mirror. See, the truth is, God at all times is looking across the world and saying, the people are in a bad place. In Matthew chapter 9, it said, Jesus looked across a group of, of thousands and said, they are like sheep without a shepherd. They are depressed and dispirited. No one's looking after them. And he looks over his disciples and says, look, pray that God would send workers into the harvest. And in chapter 10, he tells them, hey, get up, you're going. See, God at all time is looking across our world and, and he is looking at us today and saying, look at the world. People are depressed and dispirited. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're in a bad place. I read an article um, on ABC News and the article said this, that between 2002 and 2010, there, have been, there has been a 750% increase in Adderall prescriptions for women between ages 26 and 39. Critics say clearly 
Not all of these women need the drug for ADHD. And as the article continues, it talks about a woman that just they can't keep it together, that, that, that she sees the perfection of other people and she just holds herself up to the standard. And in order to achieve that standard, she's, she's got to take the drug. She's got to take her kids' drugs. She's, she's got to be perfect for everyone out there to see that she's perfect and she's not alone. The, the increase is a 750% increase in women in their late 20s and mid-30s. Right now, the porn industry makes more money than pro baseball, basketball, and football combined. Right now, there's more slavery in our world than at any point in history. Most of them children. And right now, there's animosity toward Christianity. In our world today, we are in a broken place where lots of people are searching lots of different ways for rescue and salvation. And today is a day like that day where God is calling people to step up and go and save. To step in with what you know in your world. And when you see the grandeur of the problem, and you see the plan that God has, me? I think a lot of us would respond like Moses. And Moses responds with four excuses. And the first excuse that he lines out is this. Hey, I'm not important. I'm not big enough to pull this off. And in Exodus 3 verse 11, Moses says to God, but who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? God can't use me. I'm too small. I'm too insignificant. But listen, God loves using nobodies to do something significant. He does it all the time. Gideon, he appeared to Gideon and Gideon said, I'm the least in my father's house. He's, he's in a wine press making bread. And an angel appeared to him and said, hey, go in the strength that you have and save them. And he goes, clearly you came to the wrong, wrong, wrong wine press. Like you need to go somewhere else. David was shepherding sheep. And I mean, a nobody in obscurity. See, but every time God uses someone for his purposes, he loves to pull the nobodies and make them into somebodies. He does it all the time. But the challenge is we live in a culture that celebrates the celebrity. So if you have a product you want to promote, like you've got a cool shoe you just designed, you've got a house you want to sell, where do you go to promote that product and get it on the market? You go to the celebrity. You go, hey, Johnny. Come on over here. So you lived in this house. It was awesome. You should live there too. You know, like be here to promote my product, right? Or you get the beautiful people, you know? They got a great jawline, good cheekbone structure. You want them to have, promote that image of success to, to promote your product. Only the pretty people make the websites. And, and it doesn't stop with just the products. Social media has caused us to do the same thing. I read an article in Forbes And the title of it is this, 14 Steps to Improve Your LinkedIn Presence. LinkedIn is basically a social networking program for business people or that sort of thing. And what was interesting in it, I was like, okay, I'll I'll kind of read that, see what it says. But all of the advice is on this, building your own celebrity status. It says, update your photo, get a good mugshot, right? Craft a killer headline, revisit your summary, insert a call to action plan, Join 50 groups. Connect with every one of your clients. 
Maximize your professional gallery. What it basically says is take everything that you're creating and put it on your LinkedIn thing so everyone will see how successful, how significant, how impressive you are, how important you are, how you're needed. And all of us can get under the weight of that and we can go, okay, God is clearly calling someone like that to accomplish his purposes. Someone significant. Someone that can do big things. Someone with a mic on his head. But God never rests there. He never picks the somebodies to do something significant. He picks the nobodies. And what God tells him is this. I will be with you. I'm not picking you because you're the name brand. I'm picking you because you're going to represent me. I'm going to be with you. You're not the big deal. I'm the big deal. I've got your back. And that should have been confident, giving you know, Moses confidence, right? Several, several years ago, there was a kid who was a victim of a, a major bullying attack. And uh, uh, he, he lived up in Philadelphia. And it was terrible. That it went all across the news. Um, the kid had been hung in a tree, hung on a fence. Guys had videotaped it and kind of spread it everywhere. I mean, it, it was horrendous. And the people on The View television program uh, saw this happen. So they bring the kid onto the set. The kid loved football, right? He was like a seventh grade kid, 13-year-old kid. And he comes onto the, onto the show and they bring out three football, professional football players. One of them a receiver and two like 300 plus pound linemen, right? Just gigantic dudes. And, and literally the, the guy took off his jersey, signed it, wrote his phone number on it and says, hey, you have any more problem with bullies, you just give me a call, right? And you guarantee that kid's walking down the streets of Philly like whatever people, you know, like just not even worry. And we would want that, right? Like we want to know that someone bigger and stronger has our back that is going to be there with us. And that's what God is offering to him. Hey, I'm going to be with you, Moses. You've got my presence, the God of the universe. I will have your back. And he goes, I don't know, man. Because he plays out in his mind what's going to happen next. Like he's, he's going to go to the people of Israel first. And what he says, his second excuse is this. I'm uninformed, God. In Exodus 3.13, Moses said to God, But behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they'll say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God, I don't have all the right information. I can't do this. And you can, you can sympathize with Moses, because you can imagine the scenario he's visualizing in his mind, which is, okay, I'm going to go to the people of Israel saying, I'm going to save you. We're going to go out of this place. We're going to go to worship God on this mountain. It's going to be sweet. And they're going to ask me, why should we go with you? Well, there's a bush in the wilderness burning, and, um, and uh, it was told me to take you out of here. I mean, you can imagine how this would go in Moses' mind. Like, no one's going to believe the burning bush bit, right? Like, God, this isn't going to win the day with them. And God says, look, I will be with you but I think what Moses is putting his finger on is a fear that all of us have. Hey, what if I don't have the right answers? What if when I, they ask me the tough questions, what if I don't have the right answers? You see, God is calling you to, to come to him and to represent him in the place you are. He's calling you to go to your neighbors and share the gospel, who Jesus is. He's calling you to represent Christ in your workplace, represent Christ as a student, represent Christ as a neighbor. And many of us, when we get thrown into those type of environments, we can respond a lot like Moses, like, God, I don't, I don't have all the right information. Like, what if they ask me, like, hey, what do you think about this? And, and I don't know. 
See, I think a lot of us fear, hey, I don't have all the pieces together to pull this off. I don't know enough. I mean, we fear like, like my fear when I was in seventh grade, when I would get called on by a teacher. I mean, you've all had that moment in school when you feared that the teacher was going to call on you for the right answer, right? And for me, it was never that. It was always reading. I remember one time I'm, I'm sitting there and there's a substitute teacher and we're sitting there and we're kind of going around the room, everyone reading a section um, of the textbook and it came to my turn. And I'm like sweating bullets, you know. Sweat in my eyes is coming up to me. Sweat like all around me. And, and I just wasn't good at reading in front of people. And I would skip words or miss paragraphs and it was, it was a mess. And I fumble through and I look up like I'm done, you know, like I got to the end of whatever I was reading. And the uh, the guy leading goes, you skip most of the words in a couple of paragraphs there. And I'm like, uh, you know, just, just terrified. And none of us want that moment, right? We don't want to go to our neighbors and just be like pinned to the wall. Like, hey, well, what do you think about this? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know enough, God. And God says, who am I going to say sent me? And God responds, I am who I am. Now, that's not God's name. It's a confusion. What he's saying is, I will be who I will be. I am the God who is. I am the eternal creator. I'm the God who exists. He says his name a little bit later on in verse 15 when he says, you tell them the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent you. You tell them, I sent you the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God says this, I am the God of promise, Moses. See, he references his ancestors, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs that, that started this whole thing. And God says, look, I'm the God of promise. I promise to be with you and I promise to carry you through. And in verse 17, he says, look, I promise you, Moses, you will lead these people out and you will lead them to freedom. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses. You're part of an epic that is much bigger than you. You're part of a story that is much larger than you. And the God kind of opens up a little bit further, a window into what it's going to take to free these people. In chapter 3, verse 19, God says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do after it. And after that, he will let you go. And suddenly Moses is processing this like okay wait a minute you're you're the god of history and you're gonna send me into opposition see god is calling him to be part of an epic that has been working long before his life began and i think a lot of us we would want to be part of an epic it's funny i don't know if any of you watching um the french open right now no one good enough anyone watching the nba finals going on right now okay okay but we'll have a good conversation right here. Um, it's funny, as they're promoting each of those events, um, they kind of are capturing the, the event in an epic. It's crazy. So they talk about the great tennis players. There's, there's uh, Rafa Nadal, who can win his eighth French Open, right? There's uh, Jovac Nokovic, who could win the first Grand Slam. And, and all of it is captured. They show old photos, new photos. Everything's in slow-mo, right? As if they're trying to, to capture into your mind, you can be, be part of this epic. The same is true of the NBA Finals, right? 
They're saying LeBron James and the Miami Heat, they've made it to the finals four times. Only two other teams in history have done this, right? The Celtics and the Lakers. Come and join and be part of this epic. And it's a safe epic to join. Because all that's required is you grab the remote and you sit on your couch and you go, all right, baby. You know? And there's something that's exciting about that. You want to join something impressive. You want to be a part of setting history. But not just, just not if it requires that much effort. And Moses looks about uh, at what God is calling him to, the, the, the big plays that are out there to run, the big things that he's going to have to do, the miracles he's going to have to perform. And he goes, God, I'm not qualified for this. There's no way I can pull this off. And he says in chapter four, verse one, his third excuse, Moses answered, behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. He's saying, God, look, they won't believe me and they won't listen to me. There's no way I can pull this off. I'm not qualified. And God responds to those two objections. The first way he responds is by giving him three miracles. The first miracle that he gives him is, is that of a, a snake. And in all of these, God is saying, look, I am powerful. I'm the God who is powerful enough to do this through you. And he says, what do you have in your hand? And he's a, he's a shepherd, so he's got a shepherd's staff. And God says, throw it on the ground. And he throws it and it becomes a snake. And Moses runs and hides. Like, ah, you know, like that's what happens next. And then God says to him, hey, go grab it by the tail. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched snake handlers. You don't grab a snake by the tail, right? You get a shovel and you beat its head, right? That's how you deal with snakes. You know, because if you grab the tail, it can turn and bite you. And, and so he's like, like, what? It doesn't tell us how much time went by, but I can imagine him going like, you grab it. You know, I mean, so he walks over there, grabs it by the tail and becomes a staff. I mean, what's the point? I mean, you look at all of history and, and, and the pharaohs and, and, and ancient Egypt and, and the snake was a symbol of authority. It was a symbol of power. And God's saying, look, Moses, I've got authority and power over the ones looking to oppress you. And the next miracle that he gives him is, hey, go stick your hand inside your coat. And I can imagine at that point, he's like, is there a snake in there? So he sticks his hand into his coat. He pulls it out and it's, it's leprous. It's diseased. And in my, in my mind, I'm going like, how is this helpful? I mean, what, what is he going to do? Like, go to the people like, ah, you know, like, and, and die in front of them, fall off? You know, like, how is this helpful, God? Like, this doesn't win the day. This doesn't make me impressive. This makes me vulnerable, right? But what's God showing? I have the power over disease. He says, if those two don't work, you go to the water and you drop some water and you pour it on land. And the water turns to blood. Blood is the symbol of life and death. God has shown him, look, I got the power over the authorities in front of you. I've got the power over disease and I've got authority and power over life and death, Moses. They will believe you. But Moses still doesn't buy in. He says, but I'm not eloquent, God. I don't have the tools for this. And in verse 10, he says, But Moses said to the Lord, O oh Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. 
What Moses is basically saying, I'm slow of speech. It could mean he has a speech impediment. He's like, I don't speak clearly. This is going to require someone that can speak well. And, and I don't have the tools, God. I'm not qualified to do what you're asking me to do. I don't have the answers. I'm not that important. And look, all the pieces you're wanting me to do, I'm just not ready to perform. And you would expect at this moment, or I would, God to give him a pump-up speech, right? Like God to encourage him at this moment. I mean, all of our movies do, Right? I love the movie, uh, How to Train Your Dragon with Hiccup, right? And he's like this gangly little mess of, a, of, a, of an individual. But he's got this one thing. He's smart. And so he creates this little contraption, traps a dragon, and rescues the people. And you would think that God would, would pull out these stories like, hey, don't worry. That person didn't have it all together, but they have this little nugget of success. There's a book I was reading um, by Malcolm Gladwell called David and Goliath. And in it, he talks about underdogs, people that that don't have all the tools, but actually their, their greatest weaknesses become great strengths in the right circumstances. And one of them, he talks about an attorney that, that had dyslexia, wasn't all that intelligent, um, couldn't, couldn't read all that quickly. And so what he would do was learn to memorize everything that's said. And so when he became a trial attorney later on, he was the guy that remembered every deposition and could recite them back and would trap people in lies. A phenomenal attorney. You figure God would bring some of that, those stories. Like, hey, there's people that through their weaknesses can do great things. But God doesn't go that route at all. Look at verse 11. I can't speak. I don't have the tools. The, God, the Lord said to him, who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be your mouth, and I will teach you what you should speak. God said, look, man, I take credit for your limitations. You see, we would never want to give God credit for those limitations, for being blind, being deaf, being able to speak. We would never want to blame God, but God takes credit for the limitations we have. And our limits don't limit the purposes of God. And you may be completely afraid about doing what God has called you to do, to speak to your neighbor, to go on a mission trip, for some of you to go into ministry. I don't have the tools, God. And God's like, this story is never about you. This story was never having you in the spotlight. The reason God uses nobodies is because nobodies make the best stories. And, and God is thinking in his mind, it's going to be phenomenal when the stuttering, confused, unorganized mess of a man stands up before Pharaoh and does these miracles because there's only going to be one explanation. That has to be God. <laughs> there's no way this guy pulled this off. And the same is true with you. You're not qualified but God isn't looking for qualified people. He's looking for willing people. And that's the fourth excuse that Moses brings out. He says, God, I'm not willing. And in verse 13, Moses says, oh Lord, please send someone else. You see, when we bring our inadequacies to God, God meets us in every place that we need. He says, I'm gonna be present with you. I promise I will be with you and deliver you. I have the power to accomplish the things that you can't. But when we bring to God an unwillingness to go, God says, I'm the God of promise. I'm the God who is present. I'm the God who is powerful. Now I'm the God who's ticked, right? 
And in verse 14, it says, God gets angry. His anger burned against Moses. You see, God is so willing to use anyone and everyone for his purposes. But as soon as you turn and say, hey, I am refusing to go, that's when God gets angry. And so we've all seen those moments. This is, in my mind, Moses' four-year-old kid moment, right? So I have a four-year-old daughter. And so she has shoes, lots of shoes, and lots of toys. And she brings all of them downstairs, and she plays with them, and it comes to the end of the day. And I say to her, baby, we need to carry all that upstairs, and we need to go to bed. And she goes, oh, I can't. I'm tired. Baby, you brought them all down here. We can bring them all up, okay? And she's like, they're too heavy. Sweetie, I'll carry this one. You carry those, and then we'll all go upstairs. Carry me, you know, like, and there's those moments that we do the same thing with God, right? Like God's telling you, hey, I want you to represent me. I want you to be my people in this place. It's so hard to get up and read my Bible or share my faith. Let them do it, you know, like let someone else do it. I don't want to go. And that's when God says, look, I want to use you. You go for me. And I love what God's response, his anger burns against him. And he says, he points out his family. He says, is it not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he, he will be glad of heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth and I will be your mouth and with his mouth and teach you both what you are to say. He will speak for the people, speak for you to the people. And verse 17 is my favorite verse. He says this, and take up in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. He says, Moses, pick up your stick and go. (laughs) And that's what he says at the end. And that's what God is telling you. He moves through every one of our excuses. He is patient with us. But when we say no, God says, no, you're going to go. What applications do I want to give to us for this? It's two applications that I want to give. And Peter ends his commentary on the book of Exodus. He says this, God calls us to salvation and then God calls us to vocation. You see, God calls you first of all to be saved and no one's important enough No one's informed enough. No one is qualified enough to be saved. It is a free gift. And Jesus, the perfect Moses, the one who willingly came to earth and willingly sacrificed himself on our behalf is the better Moses that will save us out of our sin and lead us to freedom. The first step is not to go, but first to come to the person of Jesus Christ who lived the life you could not live in perfect obedience to God and died the death you deserve to die. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, quotes it, quotes it best. He quotes John Newton. And John Newton told a whimsical story, and it laughed at it too, of a good woman who said, in, in order to prove the doctrine of election, she said this, Ah, oh, sir, the Lord must have loved me before I was born, or else he would never have seen anything in me to love afterwards. I'm sure it is true in my case. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had chosen, had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. God calls you to himself because he loves you. 
He calls, calls you to come to the person of Jesus Christ who died the death you deserve to die and is bringing you to new freedom in him. But secondly, God calls us to vocation. And for some of us, God is calling you to go. And for some of you, God is calling you to stay and do what he's asking you to do. For some of you, he's calling you to go. There's a family, a missionary family that, that is from here. That they're known as the Lampkins. And they've got a bunch of kids. And, and as, the, as his testimony goes, he was living a normal life, working a good job with a good future laid out. And God started tugging on his heart. And so he went now to a nation where he's got seven kids and he sticks out. They said, I'm going to follow God and I'm going to go. Remember years ago, there was a family in, in, uh, that was in my home church group. And I remember sitting in a coffee shop many days and he would, he would tell me, he worked at A&M and, and he would say, life is too easy here. I feel like God is calling me to go somewhere else to do something else. He had a wife and family, great setup here, good job. And now he's working in a, in a Muslim context, working a normal job that enabled him to get into the country so that he could be one that speaks the gospel. Some of you, God is calling you to go. And some of you, God is calling you to stay and just do what he's asking you to do. I remember when I was in college, um, there was a guy in one of my classes that, one of my government classes that he was the guy that didn't take good notes, rarely came to class, but wanted to get all of our notes and all of our materials. I remember one time we're studying for the final. There's a group of us there. He had weaseled his way into the group. At the end of one of the nights, right before the exam, also we get into a discussion about Jesus. I mean, he was a Jewish guy. And, and so he's talking. He's like, just tell me about him. And so we have this great, like, two-hour conversation about Jesus. And I'm like, okay, bye. And he writes his number down and says, hey, give me a call. I would love to talk more about this. I'm like, whatever. We take our final exam. I never see him again. Two years later, I'm walking down the street. And I, he sees me from across the way. And he runs across the street with a buddy of his in tow. And he goes, hey, I loved our conversation two years ago. Uh, you never called me. But my buddy and I, we've been reading the book of Isaiah. And uh, we have this question about this suffering servant. And I'm like, <laughs> so I, so I kind of answer some of his questions. He gives me his number again. He says, call me. I'd love to talk more about this. I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. Don't call him. Two years later, I'm at, an, I'm at a, uh, a room where they're training people to be missionaries or share the gospel in different communities around campus. They're called like, uh, anyway, but different groups. So they're all Christians being trained to share the gospel in different contexts. And I see dude in the room and he walks over to me and the first words out of his mouth are, I came, became a Christian three months ago. You blew it. And so the meeting went on. I talked to him afterward and he goes, look, I had all these questions about Jesus and you didn't answer them. And so God brought someone else into his life and shared the gospel with him. But I never forget that moment where God is either telling you to go or just be faithful to represent me in the place I put you for my glory and your good. I pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you for a reluctant hero in Moses. And the truth is, Lord, we all find ourselves in the same spot as reluctant heroes, not ready, willing, able, excited about representing you in a, in a tough world because we, we look at the problems and we look at the plan and we look at ourselves and we say, Lord, there's no way I can accomplish this. So Father, I pray that you would give us encouragement that you are 
present with us. You are the God of promise who carries us. You're the God who's powerful to overcome everything that we can't. And you will have our back in the toughest of circumstances. And so, Father, I lift up these people to you, that you would hold and protect and encourage them. And I lift up myself to you, Lord, that you would continue to guide my heart and mind to follow you above all else. We love you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great morning and hope to see you at the uh, picnic.